HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today, we are sponsored by Dixon's Farm Stand Meats, a great butcher shop in Chelsea Market in New York City. And um, as usual, we're sitting in the back of Roberta's Pizza and Restaurant. We'd like to thank them for having us, hosting us here. And it is springtime here in New York early springtime, so that means it's time for Easter and, of course, Passover. And today I thought we would talk about the origins and significance of Jewish holiday foods. So, And our guest is Jane Cohen. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. Jane is the author, most recently, of Jewish Holiday Cooking, which is a wonderful book, a compendium, really, of Jewish holiday foods, and we'll get into that later. And she's also the author of The Gefilte Variations, which is how I first came across her. She did a presentation for Culinary Historians of New York talking about 101 variations of gefilte fish. Hard to imagine. (laughs) Maybe not 101, but a nice takeoff on on the... uh, the on music and the uh, Bach variations, um, and Jane is a, an author who writes about food for many different uh, magazines and uh, newspapers. And for this book, the Jewish holiday cooking, you Jane have become part sleuth, part historian, part um, <laughs> I don't I, can't, I don't know what else, but you really dug into the depths of a lot of different. Um, cultures and countries to find some of the roots and origins of the foods. And what I loved is in the introduction to uh, to your book, you pose the notion that Jewish cooking is perhaps the original regional cuisine with a purview that nearly spans the globe. And I think it's such a, such a wonderful way for, well, for us to begin our discussion, but for people to understand the the history of Jewish cuisine. Is there a Jewish cuisine? And what is Jewish cuisine? Well, uh, Jewish cuisine 
actually is uh, not only uh, kosher cuisine, I mean, it would have to respond to all of the kosher precepts, but it also responds to many specific needs that Jews had uh, for holiday cooking. And um, during the diaspora, when Jews were expelled uh, and wandered in many different homelands all over the globe, they picked up many of the foods that they encountered there, and many of the cooking techniques, and they naturalized them. Um, a very good example is potato latkes, potato pancakes. Um, Jews made food that was fried in oil to celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah. And originally, the little pancakes that they made were probably uh, made out of cheese or some type of grain. And eventually, living in Eastern Europe, when potatoes came to that area of the world, uh, sometime in the um, 18th century, um, Jews thought that that would be a wonderful way to make make latkes, pancakes. And so potato latkes became part of the Jewish repertory. Hmm, interesting. And and the fact that there are... um of course, different sectors of the world. Then we have the Ashkenazi um, uh, Jewish right, people, the, and then the Sephardic. Um, so the foods, I would imagine, are very different. Well, and you describe that. I mean, I'm, I'm saying they, I know they are um, from your book. And, a very good example of that, uh, since we're talking about Passover, is the fruit and nut paste called haroset that's used on the Seder plate. If you look at the various recipes for haroset, it's like um, an international directory of, uh, of, of people. Mm. Um, you have recipes for haroset that include coconut from Suriname, chestnuts from Padova in Italy, uh, oranges and apricots from the Middle East. When people started making haroset in America, they added pecans, an, an American food, cranberries, um, and and you see this with Jewish food, uh, that it's constantly evolving. People have an idea that uh, it's sort of this culinary dinosaur, and the recipes should be set in stone. And when, when they're talking about that, they're, of course, talking about the kinds of food that their grandmothers made. But or boba cooking as you right <laughs> right or if you're or or nona cooking if you are Italian, Italian Jewish yes. you know um, and I think it's important uh, for people to put their own stamp on the recipes that's to very own them yeah well that's and you do such a beautiful job in the book um, with creative recipes and new recipes and also incorporating a lot of the the traditional recipes and that's I think that's wonderful um, the what are some of the dishes that have become, well, how did some of the dishes become uh, standardized because they came from so many different places? Um, talk about maybe some of the dishes that are the oldest dishes that have become, and what are their what are their backgrounds that have become sort of traditional, let's say, let's talk about Passover since that's where we are, uh, traditional Passover fare. Would, um, what would you say were some of the, the oldest, most historic dishes? Um, well, a dish that's, um, 
a Middle European dish that that we very much associate with Passover, that Ashkenazi Jews associate with Passover, is matzo balls. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this really came from the Central European uh, tradition of making dumplings out of either uh, bread or flour. And uh, Jews became very fond of these uh, dumplings. And when it came time to celebrate Passover, and they were not um, permitted to eat bread or any dishes made out of flour except for matzah or matzah meal, they created matzah balls, um, which would be a dumpling that would satisfy the requirements of uh, Passover. Um, another thing is um, the, the bitter herb that is eaten on the Seder plate. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, uh, in traditional um, times, the bitter herb was something like sorrel or purslane, um, wild herbs that were gathered wild uh, in Israel and the surrounding lands. Jews in um, Eastern Europe found the horseradish would be a perfect substitute because it's bitter. There was some controversy because it's it has no bitter leaves and it's supposed to be made out of bitter leaves. But sometime in the Middle Ages, that was accepted as a bitter herb. Interesting, because that really has mm. held uh, held its place on the Seder plate. It has. Of course, um, Sephardic Jews do not use horseradish. They'll use something like um, arugula, sorrel, romaine, celery leaves. Something that would be Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, more Mediterranean type Right, and the salt, instead of using salt water um, to dip the green vegetable in, Sephardics dip it into vinegar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the salt water and the vinegar both symbolize the tears. Tears, yes. Um, and that's and that's nice to talk about. Uh, maybe some of our listeners aren't aware of what some of the um, the representations are and the and the symbolism of the food. So the the um, the As egg. Said, the egg, yes. Oh, the, uh, and the egg is a perfect example, Linda, of a food um, that really has ancient origins. The egg that was u- that's still used by the Sephardi Jews is something called huevos aminados. You can hear the Spanish in that because um, this was something that the Spanish Jews always used. Um, these were eggs that were slow-roasted on top of a stew, Hmm. Um, often a Sabbath stew. And when I say slow-roasted, I mean overnight uh, so that the eggs would be buried in onion skins. Um, One Turkish woman that I knew said that she often would add her cigarette ashes to it, that it added flavor. (laughs) So, um, But traditionally, it's onion skins. Some people add coffee grinds and a little bit of oil and water, and it's cooked overnight. And by the time you eat it, it has this very unusual kind of creaminess. It's, it, mm. They're really quite delicious. So that is the roasted egg that Sephardi Jews have on the uh, Seder plate. Ashkenazi Jews usually use uh, an egg that has been hard-boiled and then roasted um, over a, uh, an open flame. Mm-hmm. And the egg is, like all things in Jewish tradition, layered with meanings. Um, There is first uh, the symbolism of the temple sacrifice. But of course, eggs are just rife with meanings. Um, There's a symbolism of mourning. There's a symbolism of life and rebirth, um, optimism. 
And the fact that it's circular, so it's circular, everlasting life. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Well, um, and you and you mentioned in your your family, you have a different way of serving the egg as well. You your family um, didn't dip the eggs in the salt water in salt. You. Didn't you oh, have a hard-boiled we, egg and chopped onions? Uh, right, right, um, which is a, actually a traditional Eastern European dish. Many people know it as the as chopped liver, uh, which is chopped eggs and onions with the addition of liver. But in my family, we would have uh, hard-boiled eggs that were chopped up with onions that were sautéed and raw hmm. uh, and either chicken fat or oil. Sounds like a full dish. I mean, that, was, that sounds good. <laughs> there, there are so many courses in the in the Passover Seder. Right. Um, what I like um, is that in in this it comes out in every review that I've read of your book as well that you really do give the why behind a lot of the traditions, but that you also incorporate um, Jewish cuisine from all many different cultures, um, international cultures, meaning, and that's. Um, like leek croquettes from Rhodes and the stuffed chicken soup from Iran and pineapple coconut milk kugel from Bombay. Mm. I mean, these are just such interesting dishes that I think a lot of Americans certainly don't consider, um, they don't think about or when they think of um, a traditional Seder dinner. Uh, the leek is a wonderfully symbolic food. Uh, and there's actually a little... Ancient food as well. <laughs> ancient, it was most likely one of the foods that were eaten by the Israelite slaves. And when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and given manna to eat, it was one of the foods that they complained about that they missed most. And because of that, there's a very interesting and fun ritual that Iranian and Afghani Jews have uh, that's now being sort of uh, adopted by Ashkenazi Jews as well. And that is when the traditional Seder song, Dayenu, which means it would have been enough, is sung. At one point during the song, people take leeks, or if they're too expensive, um, scallions, and start beating their neighbors. <laughs> with, uh, it's something that, that kids really Obviously love. Obviously, the kids must really, go crazy. really, really love. But, um, uh, and, well... Actually, Linda, that's one thing uh, about the Seder. The foods are used not only to tell the story, but they're also used to make it a really fun experience for the children. Mm -hmm. You have things not only like the leeks, but you have uh, a tradition of hiding a piece of the matzah, the afikoman, for kids to find. And uh, until that piece of matzah is found by the kids, the Seder can't go on. You can't finish the meal. You have um, lots of singing, and, uh, and the the dipping is always a lot of fun. Um, and, the, and everybody uh, partaking and participating in the in the readings as well. Those who yes. are old enough, that makes it a, a very participatory meal. Um, we're going to talk more about that, and we're going to get into some stories about fish as well when we come back. Seven. Seven symbols that are on the Seder table for tonight And each symbol is symbolic of our plight Freed from bondage into freedom's brilliant light Unleavened, it's unleavened Matzah baked by former slaves who were so meek It's the bread of freedom that all people seek 
and we only have to eat it for a week. It's a night we Welcome back to A Taste of the Past. In case you couldn't get it from the song, we were talking about Passover and Seder with Jane Cohen. Um, and <laughs> what I encourage you all to do, if you, if you want to know what song that was... Oh, Please contact, um, we have at, on our page on the website, there is a section for you to contact us. You can make comments on the show. You can um, express your interest in, in having me present another topic that, that you would like to learn more about. So I encourage you to please make a comment on that section, and then we know you're listening, and we know what you think of what, what we present. Um, Jane, you were giving a wonderful description of how uh, participatory the the Seder is and involving children, particularly um, in those traditions. And I had mentioned how I liked that you brought in all these international cuisines in your book. And I wanted to show you something we were, because I want to talk about gefilte fish. You wrote this the book on gefilte variations. And um, I ran across here in New York, there are a couple of, well, there are many restaurants who are... Um, Offering seders for uh, for people who aren't cooking at home, and one Sephardic style seder features um, foods of Central Asian Jews, and a couple of those dishes would be beet and turnip soup and chicken with dried barberries. Mm. Um, and then we have an Indian chef who is offering Ashkenazi standards. This is Floyd Cardoz at Tabla, and you said you've eaten his his um, matzo balls before. He's offering banana leaf wrapped fish patties. Well, now I guess this is his take on gefilte fish, correct? Right. Uh, um, you said no table is complete without fish, of course. Well, fish is always a symbolic food um, that metaphorically brings to mind good luck and fertility. So it's usually present at most Jewish holiday meals and at the Sabbath. I'm, I, I've done a lot of variations on gefilte fish. Uh, one, my particular favorite, is one that I do that combines a white-fleshed fish with smoked white fish. Oh. And the fish, gefilte fish originally was packed into fish skin and poached or baked. Well, that's something that I learned, that actually yeah. gefilte means stuffed, stuffed, right. stuffed fish. Right, right. Or stuffed, right. And then eventually it was made as a sort of patty uh, and poached separately in a broth, a, a fish broth. Now, to make that fish broth can be unbelievably smelly, <laughs> if you, especially if you think of uh, close quarters in a kitchen. So sometimes I cook it in a fish broth, but more often what I do is I poach it in cabbage leaves. Hmm. I set up a poaching which could be smelly too <laughs> yeah but not not not, not quite like the same <laughs> it's a technique that i borrowed really from the chinese huh. uh who poach many of their dumplings in lettuce leaves and cabbage leaves, right? yeah uh -huh. so i form it into balls and i put dill on it uh which gives it a lovely uh scent and I poach it just until it's cooked through. Many times you see these recipes for gefilte fish, and they're cooked. For, the fish patties are cooked for something like two hours, two and a half hours. Wow. And by that time, all the flavor leaches out into mm -hmm. the broth. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be this thing that's sat in a jar on a grocery shelf no, for ages, no. floating in this, you know. No, water. but when but when you talk about innovative res recipes that chefs are making. 
Wolfgang Puck has a recipe for gefilte fish that is made with tarragon. And oh. they're very delicately formed balls. Uh, well, canals. Like, they're like canals. They're like canals yeah. the egg, except they have no cream or dairy products right. in them. But the eggs are separated. The whites are beaten separately. And they're lovely, really delicious. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so basically when you say the variation, gefilte variations, it's just different methods of... of of cooking and the different all the many different flavorings that you can give it and ingredients you can put in it. There is a a dish that's not filter fish, but a very similar in purpose, and that is a North African dish called Belahat. And those are made; they're fish balls uh, that are poached in a very flavorful tomato sauce, easy to make hmm. and really delicious, hot or cold. Uh-huh. Um, and what? But for filter fish, is it? You say a white flesh fish, but I thought it was standard that carp was, was always used. Well, what you really need, Linda, is a combination of fatty fish mm-hmm. and lean fish. Mm. If you just use lean fish, it, it'll, it'll really apart. be it, it'll fall apart and yeah. really be kind of insipid tasting. Traditionally, it was made with lake fish, uh, and that is the trinity of uh, carp, white fish, and pike. Mm. White uh, white fish is not always easy to get. And certainly in America, many people use river fish or saltwater fish. People use mahi-mahi. Salmon is a very common Mm. fish now Mm -hmm. used for gefilte fish. But you always have to make sure that you will have that combination of fatty and and lean fish. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's... that's, And um, other than the... um, the gefilte of fish. What other are there other types of fish that are traditional on well? Yes, um, in Greek and Turkish Jewish cooking, they make a marvelous fish that's made with rhubarb, hmm. a rhubarb and tomato. Uh, I actually very seasonal too. That's very wonderful. seasonal. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very interesting point because Jewish holiday food really reflects the rhythm of the seasons. So. Passover is a spring holiday, and ideally you should reflect this on your table with uh, wonderful spring vegetables, spring green herbs. Iranian Passover food is filled with wonderful spring green spring herb stews that are practically green in color because they have parsley and cilantro and uh, dill, uh, mm. and, among other green herbs. Well, it must be... Um wonderfully interesting for families it's interesting it's unfortunate in one way because it's a time for your family to come together so you tend to be you know have the same people and and i would imagine the same dishes at least for the satyrs i've attended they always it's kind of like our thanksgiving too you don't you hate to vary it too much because everybody wants you know aunt ida's special you know potato dish um but how interesting would it be to to um take a trip around to a lot of different seder tables and just taste the the different variations of of the meals that they're having, and and the reflect their family background and where their their people came from. And I just think it would be so intriguing. Well, even if you have to have your traditional meal, at least incorporate a few different side dishes. If you serve two main dishes, which many people do if they're having a very large seder, have one of them be something new and exciting. And then next year, that may become your traditional dish. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful way of sort of incorporating new foods. 
Jewish people are very diverse people, and I think it's a great way to express that diversity, having all different foods. So from, it's diversity, yeah. it's eating regionally, it's eating seasonally, it's eating well, locally, because you have to shop for it, you know, that, you know, just beforehand. So you've got it all in there. That's that's very good. That's interesting. There was an, another point that you made that I think is just so important and um, in your book, Jewish Holiday Cooking, and that is to... It, the importance, as you just mentioned, to incorporate a new dri- dish, to invent, you know, your own tradition, um, because the old traditions will die away. I mean, you can't keep cooking it exactly the same way. Um, and if you incorporate new dishes and create new traditions, the um, those that will live on. And then you're teaching your your children about tradition as well. I, I, I think, think that's that's so true, Linda, because. Our palates change. I, I don't think that I taste food the same way that my great-grandparents did. We become accultured to eating very, very different kinds of food. I don't like chicken soup that's swimming with golden rings of fat. You know, I mean, to, to my ancestors, that was a sign of the good life. It, it isn't to me. Yeah. Um, when I said that you were part sleuth and part historian and, uh, and traveling around for this research on this book, you, in fact, did um, go to uh, Italy and France for research on some of the the traditional foods. Um, one thing in particular you mentioned was um, a hunt for a Passover recipe from a lost community in Provence. What was that all about? Well, this was a community um, that existed in the south of France. The Jews were expelled from France at the end of the 14th century, but they were allowed to remain in the south of France under the Pope's jurisdiction in just four small communities. And according to uh, literature by Provencal poets like Frédéric Mistral, their language was incredibly musical. They had their own liturgy. Their dishes were supposed to be superb. And I had read about one of their dishes called Le Prin. This was a Passover dish that was talked about. Now, Le Prin, did you Le, Le Prin it's a P-R-I-N, and it was uh, written about by Armand Lionel, who wrote a book called Jerusalem a uh, this little town in the south of France, Carpentras, Car- yeah. was was like uh, a little Jerusalem. And this dish was a breast of veal that was stuffed with fistfuls of um, uh, Swiss chard, spinach, fresh green herbs again, mm-hmm. uh, and and rice uh, and. Um, I looked for copies uh, of this recipe in cookbooks in France, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And eventually I wound up making my own version of it. But that community was so interesting. He he wrote about this little ghetto there where the Jews would make this Passover food, their, their matzahs, which were called kudol, and smelled so enticing that the Christians who were forbidden from eating, eating any Jewish food by the bishop would come banging on the gates of the juiverie <laughs> to beg to have this uh, to those of us who have eaten you know dry and uh, very uninteresting matzah that has to be slathered with either 
um, olive oil or, you know, or something, butter or something to make it palatable. To think of this kudol, hot from the oven, being so enticing is mm. very interesting. Uh, I, you know, I think of a lot of the crisp breads that are so popular now, and, and that's, you know, well, interesting, similar I, things. Actually, you can take matzah. It's very elemental. It's just made out of uh, flour and water, not even salt, and, and make it into a flatbread. Well, and then you give the interesting, which I think many people aren't aware of, you give the interesting history of matzah and background and, and the law and and um, the technique behind it that's supposed to be adhered to. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how quickly it, sh- it should be made? and. Yes, the whole process should take no more than 18 minutes. 18 minutes. 18 minutes. Anyone can make matzah. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, there is a fear that some stray yeast from the air might uh, cause the the dough to rise to ferment any kind of fermentation. Right, like a like a sourdough. Right. Um, But you had brought up international variations, Mm -hmm. and. The matzah that I had in Italy was really, really fascinating. It looked like little puffed pieces of of lace. It was much thicker than the traditional matzah that we're used to here and had um, all of these holes and cutouts, quite beautiful. Hmm. And many Italian uh, Jewish recipes call for something like a matzah lasagna. And when you think of making a lasagna out of traditional matzahs, substituting, <laughs> yeah. But these these thick matzahs, they would be able to soak and actually flavor and use for the layers in between the oh, tomatoes and the cheese. It's just as if they couldn't give up their, you know, the wonderful pasta that they're used to. So they figured out a way to make it with matzo. And you think of, I mean, uh, eggplant parmesan is breaded eggplant. The breading actually takes the place of any pasta. And uh, and people who aren't who don't know what the dish is think they're eating eggplant and pasta. With, right, you know, tomato right, sauce and cheese. Right, they don't right. realize it's just the breading. So I can I can see where that would be an excellent substitution. It right, would be very good. What What's very interesting about a lot of the Passover cuisine, and you know, so much of this is because of various restrictions that Jews had to adhere to mm-hmm. in terms of what they were not permitted to eat. So much of the Passover cuisine has become these sort of what I think of as Jewish Hall of Famers, the matzah balls, mm-hmm. uh, matzah brai, these matzah fritters that are made by both Ashkenazi and, and Sephardi Jews, many of these um, flourless nut torts. Yes. Which yeah. are and um, sponge cakes, cakes and, and yeah. uh, or you have these fabulous walnut cakes that contain really no flour and are perfect for gluten free diets. Hmm. Um, well, and that brings me to another point that I wanted to make sure we talked about. You have a wonderful chapter on vegetarian and vegan um, dishes for the holidays. That and so then you just mentioned that the nut the nut cakes that's you know for gluten free diets. What are some? Of, what would be like one of the more, um, uh, I guess, the basic dish on a vegetarian um, for a vegetarian seder that you would recommend? Well, for vegetarians and not vegans, it's not yeah. that difficult yeah, no, because then you Let's... can because then you can make many of these matzah rich dishes using um, lots of eggs and get your protein in there. Mm-hmm. Um, matzo rich dishes like like kugels you can make there's a, a wonderful recipe for matzo polenta 
that was oh, developed by Michael Romano of uh-huh, Union, Square Union Square Cafe, Cafe and served that as a main dish. Um, matzo balls, of course, can be made without any kind of meat product at all uh, uh, and can be served in vegetarian soups. The thing with uh, vegetarian Passover food is you want to make it very, very, very flavorful. And most of the uh, dishes that we're used to for Passover have that that fifth taste, the umami, umami. right, mm-hmm. which is present uh, in meat and Parmesan cheese, soy, soy which is um, actually forbidden to Ashkenazi Jews on Passover as well. Oh, because of the bean, the, the right, the because bean, it's yeah. A, yeah. So you have to figure out ways to caramelize foods to get the most out of the flavor, so that. The, you don't feel like you're eating the same food over and over again. Mushrooms are a wonderful thing to use. I make a, a, a wild mushroom kugel out of potatoes where you could make um, a kugel using wild mushrooms and Swiss chard or something like mm, that. Sounds delicious. Well, your book is filled with um, innovative recipes as well, as I said, as well as wonderful um, takes on traditional recipes, and I encourage people to look at. And it's not just for Passover; it's all of the holidays. All the holidays are presented. I just chose to talk particularly about Seder since we are here and at the uh, in the the uh, when you when this is recorded, uh, we are in the season of Passover. Passover is Monday; begins Monday. Um, and uh, but uh, but you've got dishes for every holiday in here, and I encourage people if you would like to learn more about Jewish cooking, to take a look at this book. It's called Jewish Holiday Cooking by Jane Cohen. Jane, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot from this book and from you today. Thank you very much. And thank you to our sponsor, Dixon's Farm Stand Meats in Chelsea Market in New York City, as well as our producer, Jack Inslee, and engineer, Nat Wiener. Again, you've been listening to Linda Palaccio on A Taste of the Past. 